Hi, I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by entertainer, actress, and author, Lily Singh. Stay tuned. brightness. It's relevant to so many things. It's what we experience when cultivating thoughts and endeavors that are new and shiny, how we hopefully reflect on the health of our foundations and our self-worth, and it's what we feel when watching the sparks of invention and ingenuity. And speaking of brightness, thank you so much for listening to the show, for sharing it with your family and friends, for subscribing to and rating the podcast, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. So when I think of brightness, spark, energy, self-awareness, and authenticity in our global South Asian community, I can't help but think of the shiny example that's been in front of us for so many years now in Lily Singh. Lily's an actress, an entertainer, and an author, and her Punjabi-Canadian roots are planted in a very well-nurtured soil full of heritage, culture, and growing up in a South Asian immigrant household in Toronto. She also grew a huge following on YouTube as Superwoman an extremely relatable, situational, and funny persona that resonated with millions across the globe. Lily's range as an entertainer and media personality has been broad and diverse. As an actress, comedian, brand ambassador, and activist, in 2019, she was the first person of South Asian descent to host an American major broadcast network late night talk show, and the pioneering A Little Late with Lily Singh ran for two seasons on NBC. Lily's currently a judge on Canada's Got Talent. She'll be starring in the Universal animated feature, The Bad Guys, which comes out next week, and she'll be headlining a new Disney series with the Muppets. But perhaps the most in-depth mode to capture the essence of Lily Singh has come through her books. Her first book, How to Be a Boss, A Guide to Conquering Life, reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list in 2017, and her latest book, Be a Triangle, How I Went From Being Lost to Getting My Life Into Shape was just published on April 5th. Now throughout it all, Lily's had a front row seat to a public embrace of not only her individuality with its inclusive nature and heartfelt authenticity, but the balance of her phenomenal success with its challenges and growth opportunities. She's also been a key protagonist in the emergence of the South Asian woman as a central figure in the American and Canadian cultural currents. We caught up for a conversation and we started by talking about the foundational aspects of being a triangle. I had a chance to read the book and I absolutely loved it. And I'll tell you, part of the reason I loved it so much was because it was so authentic to your voice. I felt like I was talking to you. I felt like I was listening to you as I was reading it. And and it, and it also had this great blend of playfulness and gravitas and wisdom you know, to it. it did the project for you feel like it was itself quite foundational and sort of the base of that triangle was forming as you as you were going through it itself? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. I always, my goal when writing anything is I want people to hear my voice. I always want people to hear my voice in their head. Yeah. So that was my goal with this book. Um, but no, absolutely, you know, I've written two books now, this being the second. And I think the biggest difference was for How to Be a Boss, which is my first book, I knew exactly what was gonna be in the book. 
you know, I, I had had the whole book in my mind. I knew all the advice I wanted to give. I knew all the stories I wanted to tell. This book, however, Be a Triangle, was the opposite. I actually had no idea about the advice I should give because I wasn't there myself spiritually. I was trying to get people to a place that I myself was not in. And so this book is truly me doing the hard, honest, raw work. And you, and that's how I'm writing the book. So I genuinely mean this when I say I'm a different person from before and after writing this book. And the difference is the word, are the words in the book. What, how, how did that process start maybe? I mean, for you, was it sort of like, look, I'm going on this journey. I'd love to share it with folks. Let's get this down on paper so we can actually make it into a shared journey, so to speak. How it started for me was a little bit of a beat down, if I'm being honest, because when I, I knew I had to write this book and I sat down so many days to write it and I would start typing all the things I thought it should say, you know, all right, we're going to talk about spirituality, we're going to talk about mantras, we're going to talk about all this stuff. And I would write pages and I would delete it because yeah. I was like, this is not real. Like I am not getting to the core of what I actually think needs to happen here. And so it was a lot of false starts until I had a moment with myself and I thought, you're not in the in the mind space to write this book. And I was so close to emailing my publisher saying, I, I can't write this book. Yeah. I feel lost, I don't know. And then I had a conversation with a friend and, and he said something that just blew my mind. He said, maybe you're in the perfect position to write this book. Maybe you have to actually go through whatever you need to go through. And so literally before I even wrote the first couple of pages, I had to do days and days of meditation, days of reflection, days of thinking about my life to really figure out what is it that you need out of life and what is it that you have to learn to fill these pages. So in, in getting to that spot and, and thinking about all the self-reflection and the meditation that was required, did, did you have to do any kind of external research? I mean, what you're talking about is a lot of internal research and kind of that discovery process. Did you have to think a little bit about like, okay, here's the kind of style I want, or did it really just come naturally and like saying, hey, look, I'm just going to make this kind of a catharsis of, of mm -hmm. what's going on for me right now? I definitely had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. You know, yeah. I, I'm fortunate to know some people who are very deep thinkers, uh, you know, Jay Shetty being a great example, my friend Humble the Poet being a great example. I had a lot of conversations with people with no particular agenda, not saying I'm writing a book, and I, but just to get people's perspective and ideas about things yeah. that would challenge my own ideas. And in addition to that, I, I did a lot of therapy. I talked to my parents a lot because I thought it was important for me to get a, a generational perspective that wasn't just my yeah. generation. Um, and then I also read a lot, you know, I read a lot because I wanted the book to be very, I use the word clean. And when I say clean, what I mean is I wanted to say what I needed to say without saying anything extra. Sure. I didn't want it to be a long book. I didn't want it to be fancy and complex if it didn't have to be. So the way it's written is very, like you said, as if I'm talking to a friend yeah. and that was very intentional that you don't feel like you're being lectured at, you feel like a friend is giving you some real talk and like saying things how they need to be said. It almost feels like it's very lean in that way, right? Mm. It's sort of like this great lean cut. And and you and I are probably about 18, 20 years you know, apart. Did, did you at all talk to any younger people? Like folks who, who, who like those would be the people who might be reading this and going like, yeah, this is, this is what Lily went through. And, and how might we sort of think about that? You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I talked to any younger people, but I did reflect a lot on my younger years yeah. um, because I feel like when, when writing this book, a lot of it is from my lived experience. And so I really had to be honest about the different stages of my life. And so I did a lot of reflection of like, 
where I was when I wrote my first book, where I was when I started in this industry. And I want to make it clear, this book is not about me. It's not yeah. about, it's, it's a lot less about me than my first book. Sure, I have some anecdotes here and there to, to give an example of what I'm talking about, but really it's about changing the ways we can think about what already exists in our mind. And so that's why my face is very, very small on the cover. You know, the cover is not, because I didn't want it to be about me. Yeah. And I still don't think it's about me. Yes, I wrote it, but I, I really do feel like it's it's just a light that everyone can use. Was this sort of a trust the process moment for you? Like as you went through it, just kind of like, yes, going from beginning to end at the end of the day, if I trust the process, good things will come. I could lie right now and tell you that, yes, that was the case. But the <laughs> honest the reality of it is, is that there was many moments while writing this book, like this is the most challenging thing I've probably ever done, where I was like, this is not gonna happen. This simply will not happen. Yeah. Um, because the work was so, I mean, I, I write about this in the book, but the reason this book was so hard is because it deals with issues that I simply did not know how to tackle. Like when, when I was in school, I learned how to tackle problems. When I'm in, in the workplace, I learned how to tackle problems. When it comes to fulfillment, happiness, building a foundation for your life, I don't even know how to begin thinking about those things. It's this, it's this big unknown, right? They're big unknown. So this was me literally organizing the weeds of my mind thinking, well, what does it mean to have a foundation as a person? Because that gets, let's be real, those terms get thrown around a lot. Yeah. What does it mean to have a strong foundation as a person? Yeah. What does it mean to be fulfilled? These are just yeah. fluff words. Yeah. But this was the work of me figuring out, oh, this is what that actually means. This is how I implement that in my thinking. And this is how I implement that in my decision making. So I feel like it's kind of the blueprint for fulfillment a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like an yeah. Ikea manual, a yeah. little bit to fulfillment. Hopefully less complicated than a typical yes, Ikea. Fair, fair. Right, right. Well, when you devoted this kind of attention to that, right? And you're, you are going into this big unknown, forget about writing a book, just even like asking the question, what, what does it mean to have a foundation personally? Mm -hmm. And it's almost in some ways kind of a very private moment, right? It, was that a, a challenge to sort of say, look, these are all internal questions that I'm asking myself. These are areas of intimacy and privacy that I haven't even explored yet. And now all of a sudden I'm gonna be sharing this with, with so many, you know, was that at all uncomfortable or, or did it just come naturally? You know, the, I think to some extent it comes a little naturally because I've shared so much of my life already yeah. online. Having said that, there's some parts are, that are still private that I am definitely more vulnerable about in this book. And I think that's why I enjoy writing so much yeah. because when you're alone in a room and writing a book, it feels like a safe space yeah. where you can just confine in, in your in your writing. And yes, you know, people will read it, but there's no screen, no one's recording you. It's, it feels like a safer space to me. I definitely think the things I write about in this book, I would probably never have honestly the courage to talk about on screen or in person the way mm -hmm. I did in this book. And so that's why I felt the book was the proper format for this. And does, does that take a just a different kind of courage? Like people say that it, it, you require courage at all kinds of different moments and whether it's on screen or at a, in, as a judge, mm -hmm. um, but writing this and, and perhaps the difference in the courage that it took for your first book versus this one, was, was this a different courage or did you just have to summon it in a different way? I think it is slightly a different courage because it is... As much as I peel back layers in my daily life to be like, oh, now I have to perform this way, now I have to do this, this yeah. was peeling back the most amount of layers, I would sure. say. This had the least amount of performative nature to it mm. because I truly, there was no right answer. It was whatever I felt. You know, there was no notes. No one was going to give me creative notes. My right. publisher, publisher might have given me editing notes, but it, it's, a, it's a place that's the safest 
have a connection and say exactly what you want to say. So I, I would say it was a different type of courage. Almost like a, a, as little manicured as possible. Exactly. It gets, it gets raw and ugly sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, when you devote that kind of time and energy to yourself and you reflect and you pause and you pay attention, did you find that the process or even the end result made you a better listener or even a better observer? I think it definitely made me less impulsive. So a better listener, not only to people, but just to my to myself and to the universe. Honestly, I think for most of my life, I've been someone who has struggled to control emotional impulsive responses. If something was a failure, I would feel upset. I would instantly spiral into this place of like, maybe you're not good enough. And I would have to work really hard to not do that. Eventually I would get out of that space, but my impulses were always very jump to the worst conclusion, feel stuff very strongly. I've noticed since I've written this book, I actually, that that all happens much quicker for me now. I'll give you a prime example without giving you too much detail, but yesterday I had a project fall through that I worked really, really hard on. And I was really impressed with my ability to be like, you know what, it's not personal. This is kind of how it is. Right. It's a learning experience. We'll work yeah. on something else. And it, whereas before it would have been, I'm going to put this failure, I'm going to map it onto me. I'm yeah. going to take this personally. This is going to upset me in my day. Um, and so I think my, my ability to, my perspective is just different. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Lily Singh. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Prag Marate, president of 49ers Enterprises and EVP of Football Operations, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with actress, entertainer, and author, Lily Singh. I imagine that executing on those lessons, just like you had to yesterday, executing on those lessons you've learned takes practice, right? Where you're trying to both improve, but you're also trying to be content. Is that something that, that you sort of reflect on with this, that like, you know, even with yesterday's example, sort of being content with what's out there and and yet not stopping to like go get things and achieve and improve. Mm-hmm. It is a fine balance because I won't lie, part of me was a little con- concerned when I was like, okay, if you're really chill about things, will you stop being a hustler? Will yeah. you just become complacent? And I had this whole dilemma in my in my mind. But I, I'm I'm learning that balance right now, to be honest. But I do think People have asked, oh, do you have to practice these lessons and do you have to remind yourself about what you wrote in the book? I think why this book is different is I'm not talking about things that require practice per se. I'm talking about things that require decisions. Mm. So I have decided that this is how I value work now. I value work where it is a way to make money. It is a way to influence people, influence culture, go to awesome events, travel the world, meet great people, and somewhere somewhere I can be passionate. I have unsubscribed to the idea that work defines who I am, that it means that a project is who I am as a person. So after making that decision, 
it's not really something I have to practice as much as I have to just say, oh, I no longer value myself this way. And I guess what it does take though, is it requires myself to make sure I value myself in the other ways. So now when I do something like have a great conversation with my parents, I'm there for a friend. I have a really fun night and I make great memories or I read a really great book. I value that as like, this also makes you a human, not just yeah. the accolades, you know? Right. Well, and I wonder, is, is that that much different or for that matter, is it just a, a different way of thinking as an artist or a creator in the sense that you are constantly trying to integrate them together, the weave of being content, but also having this, this drive, this, mm-hmm. this penchant for achievement or to innovate even where it, it's tough to be, to, it's tough to stay still in that way. Yes, absolutely. And I think the best example of this is as such it being who I am. One of the challenges in Hollywood is obviously representation. I'm, you know, always trying to make sure that representation is popping off. I'm trying to do my best to pave that path. Right. There's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I think previously I would take that lack of content and map it onto myself. Mm. Like, why am I not getting these shots? Why can I not be part of the show? Why am I not in these rooms? Why am I not where I want to be in my career? Instead, when I see things like a project falling through, because maybe everyone in that room was a white person that didn't understand, I'm now mapping that onto the system. Like, oh, actually, I'm not content with the system. I'm content as myself. I'm content that I'm willing to do all this and I will keep hustling and fighting and doing all that. But what I'm not content with, it's not me. It is, it is the system. So I think it's just a process of actually assigning value to different things. Which is why your work has been so resonant, right? It's so relatable. People can actually appreciate that, like, you know, look, it's, there are structural components that are, are making things like this happen. And, you know, for you, your work has been so genuine and so relatable and so funny. Fun fact, by the way, between you and I combined, we have over 40 million social media followers. I love that. Oh my God. We're amazing. We're amazing. We're, we're amazing. It's like that. It's there. There was a time when um, Michael Jordan scored 69 points in a game and like some rookie was on the team. He's just like, Hey, I'll never forget. This is the night that Michael and I scored 70 points together. It's great. <laughs> you know? Um, no, but I mean, for you and that whole idea of being relatable and being funny and being genuine and, and so authentic, is there an art or maybe even a science to being relevant? and timely as an artist, because it's not, these things, you know, are not necessarily happening by accident. Mm-hmm. And yet they are, they are surprises that tickle people when they first sort of discover. I think there definitely is, if that is what you value, which I did for a long time, you know, starting on YouTube, I was kind of governed by an algorithm, you know, and yeah. I had to make sure my content, because that's how I made money and that's how I fed myself. And so right. I had to make sure my content did well. And to do that, you want to make sure you're relevant. Yeah. Um, there was a point in time where that started to change for me, where I thought, I don't know if I care about being relevant as much as I care about doing things I actually like and that I think are cool and that are passionate. Yes. Maybe they might not be relevant. They might not be the coolest thing to click on or the buzziest title. And I remember the comments that used to hurt me the most online were the ones that would say, oh, you're so irrelevant now. They used to bother me when people would call me irrelevant. I had to really right. question why, because relevancy is kind of used as this currency you know, where you're relevant and now you're not relevant. And I thought, well, who wants to be relevant forever and play that game forever? And so I've decided that's not no longer my goal. So yes, of course, there is a way to be relevant. What yeah. I do now is I, I truly talk about things that I'm going through in my life. Yeah. 
Um, when I was in my late twenties, making back to school videos, that was me trying to be relevant, you know, playing the game, but I'm no longer there in my life. Now I'm in the place where I try to be as authentic as possible. Having said that, all social media still has a certain element of being performative, even yeah. if you're being super authentic, it is not a natural thing to be like, I am upset. So I'm going to take a picture, pose the first picture, take 30 pictures, pick the best one, edit it. And I'll write this <laughs> caption. Like, even though my caption is authentic and I'm yeah. being genuine with how I feel, it's probably really raw and honest. That yeah. entire act is not a very natural thing to do. So in some ways it will still always be performative. It's still always this kind of like, like it or not, it's a manufactured highlight reel, whether mm -hmm. it's a highlight reel of all those moments. Is... Yes. And I think it's fine for us to accept that yeah. for what it is. That right. doesn't make it wrong. It's just, I have accepted that for what it is, is that's what I know what it is. It's a tool. It helps with work. It helps express. It helps share. Again, it is not a definition of me. You know, you know tell, tell me one thing. What have some of those experiences, whether it's the, the YouTube career, you know, whether it's Superwoman or, again, on the as a judge on Canada's Got Talent or as an actor or a producer, an author now, working with Muppets, what has this taught you in some ways about endurance and longevity and and even for that matter kind of successfully and gracefully aging as an artist mm -hmm. Ooh, the trigger words yeah yeah <laughs> the trigger words aging um i think from the get-go something that I feel set, sets me apart, at least from just conversations I've had with people, is that yeah. from the get-go when I started YouTube, I never had the desire to, to be only on YouTube. I never had the desire to do only one thing. I always thought of longevity. I always tried to make decisions that I thought would make, give me a career because I wanted this to be a career for me. It's almost like you're, it's an enterprise in mm -hmm. that way. Exactly, and I always viewed it like that. And I think for that reason, the, the lessons I've learned are, are, are such. The first one, it's gonna feel a little fluffy, but it's true. I've learned the importance first and foremost, no matter what you are doing, of being a nice, good, kind person. Because when you're talking about longevity and you're talking about trying to have a career, especially in an industry like mine, it matters if people enjoy working with you. It matters if you are difficult to work with. It matters if how you make people feel. Yeah. It really does matter. And I've learned that time and time again that, um, I'll give you a prime example. The, the Muppets, when I did the Muppets audition, yeah. The person I auditioned with, who was one of the creators of the show, said to me, you won't remember this, but years ago I met you and you were kind enough to make a video for my son because he was a fan. And right. I thought, yes, baby karma coming through here. <laughs> back. Um, but it's important to be a nice, so I really, really do try, not just because it's important as a value for me, but I think the best business tactic you can have is to be a kind person. That doesn't mean being a pushover, but it means respecting people and being enjoyable to work with. So that has been a really good lesson for me. Um, it has also been to be a disruptor. You know, yeah. when you talk about age, there have been moments where I definitely got into the funk of thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in my 30s now. Every script I read references a woman in her 20s. I am yeah. now old. I can't, I need to get Botox everywhere. I'm freaking out. I've had those moments. Yeah. And then I have to reflect back thinking, well, everything you've done thus far, you've been a disruptor. You got into this industry on, on YouTube. You didn't need a casting agent you didn't need all these and you break the rules left right and center so break these rules don't let people put you in this box and tell you when your career should end and i'll, I'll let me conclude this question by saying this <laughs> i have to flex saying one of my my heroes is obviously dwayne the rock johnson and i yeah. adore him and something he said to me was 
you know, when he was a football player, everyone thought that was his lane. And then he went into wrestling and everyone thought that was his lane. And then when he tried to do movies, people thought you can't do movies from being a wrestler, but he's since gone from going to movies to TV and he's done everything where every step of the way someone said, but you don't traditionally, this is not what people do. They don't go from this to this and they definitely don't go from this to movies. They'd have to go to TV. So he's just broken all the rules. And that's kind of been my, my um, inspiration is just don't let people put you in the box. That's the key to longevity is to break the box over and over again. Well, and, and you're breaking the box and being a disruptor as a genuinely kind and good natured person. Is it such that a that takes some initial kind of trust and self confidence to be able to put those two together and map this all out. But then on top of that, as you breed that much more success, does gaining that much more trust and confidence in yourself kind of allow you to evolve and shape shift and and sort of be better as an artist and and sort of flow, right? I mean, as you mentioned in the book, and even I can tell, like there are moments where it is a time for quiet introspection and other times to be the you know the best extrovert in the room mm-hmm. and and do that sort of in a situational way and and kind of even allow yourself to take risks and even allow for some missteps here and there does that just get easier because you've sort of taken your own trust and confidence and built it and and made it grow and develop and nurture it quite a bit the thing that is definitely built is exactly what you said the trust in myself right. i really do believe I am a witch. I do. I do believe. I believe I'm a white witch. I believe that I can manifest anything. I do believe this to my core. I feel like I can put do anything I set my mind to. And every time I start a new project, I have that trust. I have that confidence. Having said that, what doesn't get easier is when I'm actually in the situation, I get beat down all over again. So I had this trust going into late night. That was super hard. I'll ha- I have this trust going into Muppets and everything you, every time you go into something, there's gonna be a new layer of obstacle where you're like, oh, I didn't even realize this would be a thing. And so I don't necessarily trust the situations I'm put in. I trust my ability to figure it out, even though I know it's gonna be really, really hard. And I think you have to, and I think that stems in self-love. I think you have to. Listen, when you're someone that works really hard and you have a dream and you're stepping out of your comfort zone every single day, that's the hardest part of my job. I literally step out of my comfort zone almost every single day. There yeah. are seldom days where I'm like, oh, everything was easy today. I talked to the same every day I'm doing something. And I've had these moments where I'm like, why couldn't you pick another job? Another job where you just could have stayed in your comfort every day. You're, you're nervous about something, but that has really given me the endurance to be like, it's going to be another day where I step on my comfort zone. I trust I will figure it out, even though it'll be really hard. There'll be obstacles I have not faced. I will somehow figure it out. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Lily Singh. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Let's rejoin our conversation with actress, entertainer, and author Lily Singh. You know, it's funny when when you say that. I'm thinking of the people who probably are around you as well, mm-hmm. because you know that that kind of ability for you to have comfort in stepping out of your comfort zone is probably infectious. When people say like, "Hey, look," you know, the people who's people who are around you are also feeding off of that. I'm sure, and that must build a lot of confidence and trust in your team, in you know the people who are a part of your circles that they say, "Oh, yeah, that's just Lily. She's." You know, she's she's very, very comfortable in, in stepping out of those comfort zones. Yet I imagine that each, like you said, each time you have to do that, there is a learning process to it. Absolutely. Um, you're right. I would I have to be honest and say that I think, and this is a little painful for me to say, but being sure. part of my circle is probably a bit a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think people around me have told me that I've inspired them. People around me generally are people who then feel ambitious and then go and, and chase things because yeah. they've seen me do it or I've, or I've helped them. They've stayed at my house in LA when they didn't have somewhere to stay. And I, I really try to create an environment where people can follow their dreams like I did. Having said that, um, my life is also a little bit of a whirlwind and you right. get caught up in it sometimes as well, you know? And it, it pains me that some people in my circle Perhaps people only talk to them to get to me. Perhaps people don't have the best of attentions when they talk to those people. Perhaps people want to support them, but only if Lily's involved. And so I, I, I feel for their attachment to me in some ways as well, yeah. you know, but having said that, I've also had my friends be like, I love when we have work sessions together, but also like they'll purposely bring a big monitor so they can hide behind it and slack off a little bit because I am a little bit like, yeah, I. I, I will say this, all my friends know that if I if I decide to do anything, it is gonna be done to the 3000th percent effort. Right. Whether it's planning a party, whether it's a dinner, no matter what I'm doing, they're like, if Lily's doing it, it's gonna be, it's gonna be 300%, no right. matter if, what. It's a blessing it, it and a is, curse. It's an extravaganza, right? Yes, always. Yeah. Simple thing like a car wash is gonna be the best, most extravagant car wash Absolutely. we've ever had. If right. I don't get five stars to the car wash, did I even <laughs> do the car wash? You know, That's right. 100%. Done. Well, you know, in that way, it, it probably allows for that combination of taking things to that uh, extravaganza level or, you know, to 11, if you will, mm-hmm. right? It, it means that you break through a lot of barriers and, and you find opportunities that put you in that situation that to break through barriers. And, and you broke through so many and also created so many firsts with a little late. And, and as you think about it now in 2022, after you've written this book, what were some of the I mean, I'm just thinking, what, what were some of the motivations or even some of the surprises that emerged from that chapter closing? Well, first off, right, when you said the word first, I get a little bit of a, a, a punch in my gut. And I always do when someone says first, because huh. I think it's, it's perhaps not general knowledge that being the first is both the coolest thing and the hardest thing, <laughs> because being the first, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I decided to do late night, a big reason why I decided to do it wasn't because I was super passionate about late night. It wasn't because I was like, oh my God, this is my dream job. It was because I knew it would be historic. Yeah. I knew a South Asian woman doing this would be historic and I wanted to pave that path and I wanted to be part of that moment and it would be really cool and I could try to really make it count for our community. Yeah. I was naive to think that that feeling would get me through multiple seasons of a very, very tough show, you know, sure. without having that really genuine passion. 
I've learned the first, although really cool, who doesn't want headlines written about them? Who doesn't want to be part of history? It's all so cool. But when you're the first in a minority group, what inevitably happens is that a billion people turn to you and yeah. say, you are our pride and joy now, and we're all counting on you. But even though those billion people are all South Asian, you know, one in four people are South Asian on this planet, yeah. they all have very different experiences. Yeah. Their parents are not like my parents. Yeah. They're not all women like me. They're, they don't have the same sexuality as me. They don't have right. the same upbringing as me. So now a billion people are looking to me to represent them and their experience. And the best I can do is represent me and my experience. Right. And inevitably that, that causes a lot of pressure. You know, yeah. it causes a lot of pressure for someone who's first. And I, I think across the board, people who are first, even people before me, yeah. don't get their roses for that. You know, yeah. I don't think the Mindy Kalings, I don't think the Cal Pens, I don't think the Jay Shans, I don't think people, think people realize the pressure of being that first mm -hmm. and having to figure it out. Because when I was there in late night and I would have really tough days, I could never turn to anyone. I could never say, oh, let me ask the other female late night host. Right. It's not like there's a club out there for you. Exactly. So it's, it's very, very tough. Um, that chapter closing, what it taught me was I have to give myself permission to now make the decisions that benefit and serve me. And I have to do that to be the best version of myself. You know, for me to have made such a big decision, knowing it wasn't my passion, knowing it might not be the most fun, that really pains me now, two years later, to think about that. And, and it pains me because, and I, and I hope you can relate to this, especially immigrants and children of immigrants and anyone who's oh. hustling, we're on this race of like, we got to do all the things to get to where we want to go. We have to hustle. We have to do the gigs, even if they're free. We have to do the things we don't want to do because we have to earn our stripes so that one day we can get to a place where we can do what we love to do. Yeah. But the issue is we forget that goal. We forget that's the goal and we get caught up in the race. And that's what I did. I got caught up in the race where now I realize, no, I am in the position where I can do things I'm actually passionate about right. and I can make those decisions. So now when I decide to do anything, I do ask first and foremost, will this be fun for me? Yeah. And will I be able to do this with the best of my energy? Like that's, that's what actually matters. So that chapter closing really taught me that. You know, it's funny. I would mentor medical students all the time. And one of the things I would always tell them is that, look, you, you're going to get interviews for jobs. You're going to go after opportunities. If you can answer two things for yourself all the time, do I like the people I'm working with? And am I going to have fun? Mm -hmm. I, I think that those things are so highly underrated. Absolutely. That it's, it should be a mantra for almost every decision you make. And, and the part you mentioned about being the first out there, yeah. in, in some ways is the task and challenge now defined for the next person, you know, the next person who comes up and the next person up there. I mean, is there some motivation or even some solace in knowing that you just paved a road for, for someone else, you know, who's out there, albeit their experience is going to be, you know, somewhat different than yours. If their experience is less difficult than mine, then yes, that for me is a hundred percent of the reason of why I did this to pave that path. You know, I'm very passionate about the South Asian community. I'm very passionate about representation. And so do I regret that time? No, because of that. I don't. As hard as it was, I do not regret saying yes. I do not regret late night. I learned so much. I was given an opportunity and I don't regret it at all. Um, one thing I want to say is because if there's any parents or aunties or uncles or even my parents, even my parents, if they're listening yeah. to this, I know every time I say something like, now, when I make a decision, I ask, am I going to have fun? I can hear my parents and my voice being like, must be nice, must be nice to think this way. Like I can hear them saying this. And I, I want to acknowledge that because that's a really valid point. And I write about this in my book, that any conversation around having fun 
and being mentally healthy. It is a privileged one. Some people do not have those privileges to ask those questions. And my parents likely did not have those privileges growing yeah. up in Punjab, India. I think they were survival mindset. Yeah. They knew they needed to execute in order to feed the family. They knew they needed their kids to be a certain way in order to thrive in a country of a billion people. You know, And so I respect any adult that doesn't have that mindset. However, to that I say, my parents and a lot of my aunties and uncles are well off now. They, they no longer need to survive. They live in Toronto. They're very comfortable. Will they travel whenever they want? No, they won't. Will they find new hobbies? They won't. It's because the survival has become a habit. Yeah. It is not a necessity. It is a habit now. So what I am suggesting is that, yes, if you are in the position where you can't prioritize having fun, I've been there. When yeah. I first started my career, I couldn't make decisions based on if they were fun. But what I'm saying is don't get stuck in that mentality is that you can then graduate and give yourself permission to actually be like, oh, can I now get rid of that survivor mindset? And can I actually now do what is right for my soul? That's what I'm challenging. Because I believe my parents could do that, but I don't think they always choose to do that. Yeah, and I wonder if that context just is always changing because I'm curious whether or not people in our parents' generation, and I'm a parent now, I have two teenagers, and is the context behind all this just different and or maybe they just ask the same question am I going to have fun with this but they just ask it in different ways maybe they're more subtle maybe they're more silent and maybe they're more suppressed and, and repressed mm -hmm. and I, I mean I'm sure my kids and, and kids who are who are out there are teens who are out there are young adults who are out there right now are going to ask that question very differently in the future too in ways that I won't even be able to comprehend right absolutely you're listening to trust me I know what I'm doing after a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Lily Singh. Stay tuned. My name is Lakpa Sherba. I'm Summit Mountain Everest 10 times. And you listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with actress, entertainer, and author, Lily Singh. You wrote a piece and, and shared a TED Talk on some structural fixes for better gender equity and diversity. By the way, super kudos and congratulations on a very well-placed moonwalk uh, oh. at, at the end there. That's <laughs> good stuff. Thank you. Just gold. Wasn't in the final edit, but yes, I did moonwalk off stage after my TED talk. <laughs> I like that, yeah. When you think about the concepts that you, that you talked about, de-weaponizing gratitude or investing in potential and making more space for, for more women. What are some of the accelerators of this? What are some of the power levers, you know, that, that we need to, as a culture, as a society, just that we need to structurally do to make these things happen? And, and for that matter, how do we prioritize this? Because they all three are so important and yet you can't necessarily do one, all of them at the same time, that they, they take time and, and sort of effort to, to develop. Right. 
The first two parts of this question, I think, are a little easier than the last part, so I'll start there. Um, what do we need to make this happen? I'm going to be very honest and say we need more women in powers of decision making. I am not naive enough to believe that a, a room full of men are going to genuinely want to give their seats up to women. Yeah. I, I'm not naive enough to think that. I think we need more women in positions of power to bring in more women. You know, any major project or thing I have done, usually it is a woman championing me. Usually it's a woman of color championing me um, because they understand the environment and they understand what it takes to get there. The second part of this is me very honestly saying if there is a limited number of resources, which I also don't always completely believe, I think there is an abundance of resources, but it is framed to be limited. Um, if there's a limited amount of resources, you, you're going to need to start taking some away from people that have been sitting at the table for a really long time yeah. and giving it to new voices. And I talk about this in my TED talk that it is not enough to introduce a new voice. You, new voices need support. If culture is not used to a new voice, if an audience is not used to a new voice, that voice needs support and championing. So I talk about the fact that my late night show was given a budget based on being a 1.30 a.m. time slot. I don't agree with that. Yeah. I think it should have been given a budget for being a new diverse voice in late night that is trying to break through. And mm -hmm. to be after Jimmy and Seth and be given a fraction of their budget, but try to stay on par with them was set up for failure. That was never going to work. And so without throwing anyone under the bus, I do think resources need to be taken away from the voices we've always seen. Yeah. And that's what real change looks like. Now, the last part of this question being, how do we prioritize that? Yeah. That's something I'm still figuring out. I know women prioritize it. <laughs> I know women think it's really important. But until men who make up half of the population really believe that there's value to women being in those positions of power, I don't know how that's going to change. Um, I don't know. I mean, and I mean, the proof is there. Yeah. The proof is there with the achievements of women in so many industries and fields that when women are involved in the conversation, great things happen. But it's going to take a little bit of the fragility, if I, if I mean as bold to say, of men to, for this yeah. to happen. Well, and, and, you know, allyship and the licensure for men to be able to acknowledge and, and make sure that these areas where new grass is growing, that you got to water it, you got to have more space for it, you have mm -hmm. to ensure that it's going to be a setup for success rather than failure. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think of my daughter in, in situations like this, where it's, it's one thing for, for her to achieve. It's another thing for the soil where she's sort of planting those foundations that it's ripe there. And it's, it's actually right. fertile for, for a lot of, of great growth and rich, rich nourishment. That's why I say that the, that's why I very specifically say the decision-making rooms, because I yeah. think a lot is being done on the surface level. If you look on screen, yes, you might see a great number of women, women of color, so it's a little bit window dressing right now, you know, because when you actually get into the depths of it, it's like who's in the room making the decisions yeah. and who's in the room giving the notes on this project. And it's the reason why every South Asian show we have right now has a little bit of the whole today's Diwali, you know, the festival of lights like we don't talk like that, but it's yeah. the reason it sounds like that right now. Right. Because of the people who are in the decision making rooms. Is that an aim for you to be in a position of not just influence, but but holding those levers of power and holding that ability to be able to say, I feel comfortable and genuine and honest in making these kinds of decisions because I know what it's like to be on that other side. Mm -hmm. And that and that making those decisions are important, not just for our South Asian 
global South Asian community, but but for everyone. Absolutely, yes. I my priority is to make change, and yeah. it is to disrupt. Like I said, my purpose is to disrupt, and to do that, I believe I have to be in those rooms. So yes, absolutely. I'm not precious about only being on screen. I'm very happy being the decision making behind behind all those things too. <laughs> is there and is there there perhaps like you said there isn't a club of people who are waiting out there to show you the way. Mm -hmm. Does the courage that it takes now to take that extra leap is is that a different path that you have to just forge for yourself or is it important to build coalitions and allies and well, and find ways to get there? I think the latter. I think there's strength in numbers for sure. Yeah. And um, I would say that there's something shifting in the energy. Recently, I went to a South Asian Excellence event. Yeah. I have never been to a South Asian Excellence event. I've never heard of one before. This was the first one. And we are all very excellent, by the way. Thank you. And it was to celebrate a historic 10 Oscar nominees that are South Asian. Yeah. And it was a room full of people that were all on the same page, all celebrating the same thing, and all wanted the same thing. So I think the coalition is happening. I think there's a group of South Asian people who are very, very adamant on our community thriving and seeing South, A South Asian representation win. So I would not be, I don't think it's smart to say that I have to get in the rooms and have to do it right. by myself. And I, no, I think a group of people together that have a common goal is always gonna be stronger. Your heritage, our heritage, right? It's such a big part of who we are. It's certainly a big part of you. And in 2022, thinking about sort of like the, the current zeitgeist and sort of what the kind of global pulse is, especially for someone who's at least not, definitely on social media and in these, in these rooms has a kind of front row seat to all this. As a global Punjabi, what are you proud of right now? What are you thankful for? What, what does it kind of feel like to be a global Punjabi in 2022 at this moment? That's a really good question. I don't know if I've thought about that, but I will do that right now. What am I proud of? I mean, honestly, it's kind of the answer I just gave, but I'll frame it differently for you because yeah. I think for a long time, not only Punjabis, but even let, let's go broader and say South Asians, we, we really do have the competitive mindset. The scarce, scarcity mindset has been given to us of like, our parents would want you to be the top of class. Right. Two people can't be the top of class. You have to be the top of class. You have to get the good husband. You, it, it was very like you, you cannot, you cannot be an ally with another woman or another person of color. You had, there was one spot only. And it's because we've often only been given one spot, if even that. And so something our community has really struggled with is building any type of camaraderie. You know, we've always viewed things as if there's one spot for one brown girl, we're all going to be fighting against each other. I think what has shifted now is that we no longer subscribe to that idea. We actually want to champion each other. We, I want to see Priyanka win. I, if I go for an audition, I want to see every other brown girl I know in that same audition. And I hope we all equally have a chance to get it. You know, that's the real win. So I think we've all really um, let go of that mentality that was holding us back and understood that for things to get moving for all of us, we need to rise together. And I feel that for the first time ever. I mean, last last year for Diwali, I think every week I went to a Diwali party in LA. And that's the first time that has ever happened, yeah. you know? So the synergy is definitely there. And I'm really proud of us because I know that required a lot of unlearning. It yeah. required a lot of stepping out of our comfort zones and it required just a lot of trust, trust in each other. And I think that's there. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Lily Singh. Stay tuned. 
Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tam France, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with actress, entertainer, and author, Lily Singh. I have okay. to tell you, you do the best Indian accent I've ever heard. R- really? No, okay, seriously. I, really? My Indian no, accent is not that good. <laughs> no, it, it, I, I value a, a very good Indian accent. I, I, I personally do. When you're doing this and you're performing that sort of caricature of someone with an Indian accent, be it very you know, simple, but is it an act of acknowledgement, almost sort of like an act of reverence, mm-hmm. sort of that, you know, it, it kind of an, if you know, you know, moment versus something that, that could be taken to be mm-hmm. offensive or perpetuating a stereotype. Right. I'm just, I'm so curious what you know. This is that. a good question. I talk, I actually just had this conversation with a few friends of mine um, who also do great accents that are way better than mine, but thank you for the compliment. I think, listen, I think in, for me, at least in my lived experience, an important part of embracing who I am, yeah. dealing with trauma of past generations, reconciling a lot of things that have been hurdles in our culture, I lean to comedy. Yeah. I always have leaned to comedy. I think we need to be able to make fun of ourselves. I think we have to make fun of ourselves or else life will become very bleak, you know? And I think when you're in a community and when you were raised with parents that are Punjabi and that say these things, I I feel like I should be able to make fun of it. And so when I do the accent, I am by no means, I think some people take it as like, are you mocking them? My parents do have a little bit of an accent, you know, yeah. so I'm not making that up. They yeah. do have an accent. And, and my response would be, why is, should that be considered a form of mockery? Yeah. Why can't it be that I think my parents are super dope and they have an accent and I'm trying to sound like my parents. So that's my intention when I'm doing my accent. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I grew up with Russell Peters. I grew up with all these people. Th- those comedy bits made me feel so proud of who I am. And I don't want to dissect them too hard. I don't want to be so pessimistic looking at them. I-, I believe in the power of comedy. And so I don't think we should take ourselves too seriously. I agree. And, and I, it, if anything, it's sort of like, it makes me happy. Um, it makes me feel at home and it makes right. me like I makes me feel like I have a sense of belonging. And I've always felt that, you know, in general, the arts and entertainment and anything you watch or take in affects people differently. I fully respect that. Yeah. I fully respect that someone might hear an accent and they might be triggered because they had an accent and people might. I totally understand that. Yeah. And I think that person should not watch that thing, you know, or not. But to say oh, this triggers me in a certain way, so now no one can enjoy it. Yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a lot of danger in that because I also know a lot of friends, just like what you said, when they see someone, especially if the person is brown, now get, let me just emphasize and say this, I'm talking about brown people doing a brown yes. accent. I'm not yeah. talking about a white dude coming out here and making fun. I'm talking about yeah. someone who's like, this is what my parents said to me. Right. I think that would make me feel really seen and that would make me feel really comfortable and proud. And so if I have that experience, I should be able to enjoy it, you know? And so I think it's to each their own and we really need to embrace that. Not everyone will like everything, but that doesn't mean that that thing needs to now disappear. Whether it's through meditating on items like this, right? Like what, what makes us who we are, 
whether it's through a meditation on your self-worth and value and accounting for your culture, your upbringing, almost like harnessing your skills and, and talents and all the lessons learned, everything you, you talked about here. I'm curious about this. If you were writing a note to yourself to open up and read next year or next month or, or even tomorrow, what would it say? Um, my honest answer, and this is not just a book promo, I promise it's my answer. My goal with this book was for it to be the blueprint for my okay. life moving forward. And my hope is that it still is tomorrow and a year from now. And I'll tell you why is because, and this goes back to the first thing we talked about, what does it mean to actually build a foundation aside from that being a cute buzzword? For me, what that means is that means you have a set of core beliefs and values and a place to return to mentally, no matter what else is happening. When you think of, of a foundation for anything, a building, a project, it doesn't matter what else is happening. You hope that that stays put. So that means tomorrow, if I win 17 Oscars or if I fail miserably, no matter what, I still have a place to come back to that has not been shifted. I hope that place still exists. And it consists of four things that I talk about in the book, which is a relationship to myself, a relationship to the universe, understanding distraction and implementing design. Those things I can always come back to. So that's what I hope. I hope a year from now, I hope 10 years from now, I still have that blueprint and I still have that place to return to. Well, Lily, I, I hope those who read your book, those who experience all the things that you're doing are coming back over and over again to really understand the kindness and the talent and the skill that it takes to put it all together. Lily, thank you so Very much for, for thank joining Thank you so us. much. This was such a joy. I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much, Lily. And please check out Be a Triangle, which is available wherever you get your books. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darndekar.
Hello, my name is Lakpa Sherba. I'm Summit Mountain Everest 10 times. And you listening to, trust me, I know what I'm doing.